So to start off with, um, for those who may not speak Māori or who might not be familiar with how we start things here sometimes, um, we're going to do our karakia. So our karakia can loosely be translated for many, obviously as prayer, it's a little bit, li- little bit more than that, um, but that will open up our space, uh, keep us safe, keep our guests safe, um, and then we will get into it. And just, you know, when we start with a karakia, we close with a karakia. So please don't leave um, or open the doors uh, until we have done that in order to, what we say, fuck a cuppy, in order to close us. All good? Kapai. Cool. All right, me tima tata, tau me inoi. Karere, karere, ko te ata hi whaia, hari e ngā mate. Wirohia ki a papatua nuku, wirohia ki tai. He tuhi mārei kura ki te ao tūrua, turuturua tae rua ona tohu, he tōrua, he amukura. Turuturua uta he huia tōna tohu. Kia ai whakarungo ki te huia e tangi mai nei, Tihei Mauriora. Ara ki te mana whinua o tēnei rohe, me mihi ka tika ki a rātou ngā tifatua, o rākei ngā kaitiaki o tēnei whinua. Ara ki ngā kanohi kitia ki a koutou katoa, te hunga ora, tēnā tātou. Kia ora, kia ora whānau. Um, ko Māni Dunlop tēnei, hiuri tēnei nō te nōta nō Ngāpuhi. Uh, I'm from the north uh, and I have the absolute privilege and honour to be here to just guide uh, this kōrero. Um, but just before we start, I want to just thank uh, the High Commission of Canada and the Australia Council um, for the arts, for their support for the sessions. And I think I'm inviting Kauti Patterson to say a few words. Is that right? Thanks, Councillor. Thank you. Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Kelty Patterson, and I um, am a Canadian on posting at the High Commission of Canada in Wellington. One of our large portfolios that we cover there is Indigenous issues. Um, and, uh, you know, it's a great honour for me to be here to... We have two Canadian artists, uh, writers, that have uh, flown all the way from Canada to participate in the uh, Auckland... Uh, in the Arts Festival... or the Literary Festival. Um, and one of them is uh, Joshua Whitehead, who's sitting here with us. Uh, the other one is Katharina Vermet, who um, I don't think is... Uh, she was in a session yesterday, but they've been participating periodically throughout the throughout the week um, at the festival. And um, as I mentioned, one of our big um, our intentions as the Canadian government is to support the voices of Indigenous people from Canada and elsewhere. And obviously, there's a strong core connection between New Zealand and Canada in that regard. So, uh, just wanted to th- um, thank Joshua for coming all this way to the um, organizers of the festival for including Canada, and we're very proud to be able to sponsor these events. Thank you very much. Thank you, Kelsey. Kia ora mai tātou So today, obviously, the name of this event uh, is Two Spirit, um, but we probably won't just traverse that, um, but look at how Indigenous writers are reclaiming these concepts uh, in terms, contemporising them, and bring to light, um, you know, the colonisation that we have had to endure of our identity, our, sexu- our sexuality, uh, and our gender identity, and of course, sex. Um, the term two-spirit is obviously from Turtle Island, otherwise known as North America. So while we uh, will start there, I hope to traverse Indigenous queer identity with our guests, um, who I will now introduce to you, to you all, um, and I'm just going to touch on some of the amazing things that they have all done, um, and there is much more, so please look them up uh, in order to, and buy their books, um, in order to make that happen. So firstly, I want to introduce Joshua Whitehead, who is Two-Spirit, Oji Nihiao, member of Pequis First Nation, and his poetry collection, Full Metal Indigiqueer, was shortlisted for the Indigenous Voices Awards, uh, Award and Stephen G. Stevenson Award. His novel, Johnny Appleseed, was long listed for the Giller Prize, the Governor-General's Literary Award, the Carol Shields Winnipeg Book Award, and won the Lambda Literary Award, and the George's Brunet, did I say that right? Because you guys are a little bit Frenchy, Award for Fiction. His latest <laughs> is a book of essays, Making Love with the Land, and he's also uh, at teaching International Indigenous Studies at the University of Calgary uh, at the Blackfoot, or on Blackfoot Confederacy Whenua. Welcome, Joshua. Uh, 
Um, I'll introduce our next manuhiri, our next guest uh, in, on our um, land in Aotearoa is Alan Van Nieven, who is an award-winning writer and editor of Mununjali, Ugambe and Dutch Heritage. Alan's first book, Heat and Light, won the David Unipon Award, the Dobby Literary Award and the New South Wales Premier's Literary Awards Indigenous Writers Prize and their poetry collection, Throat, won the New South Wales Premier's Literacy Awards Kenneth Slesser Prize and the Multicultural New South Wales Award and Book of the Year and their latest is the Sports Memoir Personal Score. Please welcome Alan. And uh, in the middle here is Kōtoku Titihuya Nato from Tiatiawa Ngāti Tūwharetua and Husweinich has connections to both Aotearoa and Turtle Island. Her Adam Foundation prize-winning hybrid debut Tohu is set in a post-colonial alternate reality exploring indigenous family and womanhood. Kōtoku is currently a PhD candidate at the International Institute of Modern Letters. Welcome Kōtoku. <laughs> So just to give you a brief of how the session will run, we'll just ha open up with a you know, few parts, a few discussions, whakawhiti kōrero. Um, I've asked uh, the writers to each do a reading as well um, for you all, which I know is my favourite part and probably yours. Uh, and then we'll hopefully have some time for some audience questions. Um, as, as yesterday, with the, we had a session, a, a really amazing session with some um, Indigenous writers, and the title was A Term from Turtle Island. This time the title is again A Term from Turtle Island. <laughs> Um, so Joshua, I'm going to put you on the spot again, and so I think just to start us off and set the foundation for our corridor, um, could you please explain to us and give us a depth of understanding of what Two Spirit is and where it's come from? Yeah, well, just Ari, the, the bio, I can never get those names right either, those friends. Sorry, names. did I mess it up? Probably. <laughs> I, I was yeah, like, yeah. I don't know what this white man's name is, so <laughs> <laughs> all good. As long the as I got your tribes right, my bro. <laughs> <laughs> That's correct. That was correct. Um, Hi, my name is Josh. Um, so I come from Treaty 1 territory. Um, my nation is Pegwa's First Nation, which is primarily made up of the Anishinaabeg or the Ojibwe, uh, the Nehiawak or the Cree, as well as the Soto, and it's also the homeland of the Métis Nation um, of Canada. And so two-spirit is, is a fairly new term, at least in this kind of colonial tongue we're using English. It was born in 1990 in Winnipeg, Manitoba, uh, in Treaty 1 territory, which is where I am from, uh, which is the confluence of two rivers, the Assiniboine River and the Red River, and is the very heart of the trading routes and kinship systems of indigenous peoples across Turtle Island, primarily uh, through the prairies, but also the woodlands uh, of Ontario, if you know Toronto, I suppose that folks know that, but also moves through the Red River into the southern U.S. Uh, through to Creole spaces as well. So we also have Afro-Indigenous kin or black indigenous kin as well through that, that vein that connects us all. And it's in this space, uh, the Red River uh, and the Assiniboine, the confluence of it all, is called the Forks. It's where the two rivers meet. So that, again, was the main trading route, was the main primary route of kinship connections as well. And so Two-Spirit is a term, which is a, an English term, uh, I'm sure that's apparent, um, but does encapsulate over 155 different connotations uh, around indigenous epistemologies or ideas uh, of sex, um, of sexuality, of gender, uh, but also of community roles and community formation, which for me is what differentiates it from what we call in Turtle Island settler sexualities. Um, so it was, it's an infant term in English. Uh, it was born in 1990, again in Treaty 1, by the elder Myra Laramie, who is Anishinaabeg or Ojibwe, uh, and a two-spirit elder there, which came out of a necessity because what we might call now, quote-unquote, queer indigenous folks on Turtle Island were, were very targeted since the docking of power on Turtle Island in 1492 um, with he who shall not be named. <laughs> the Voldemort of colonialism. <laughs> and so indigenous women and queer trans indigenous folk were in the sniper rifle scope um, of assimilation, of imperialism, of genocide, cultural and actual genocide, which Canada does not like to admit, um, which is why we have missing and murdered indigenous women, girls, and two-spirit peoples, which we include to that. 
And so Two-Spirit was born out of a necessity because the term that was attributed to us uh, came from the Spanish idea of berdash or berdash, B-E-R-D-A-C-H-E, which basically quickly translates to a prostitute uh, or a catamite, um, and obviously had negative connotations around the barbarism of those queer indigenous folks, right? Those non-binary indigenous people, those trans-indigenous people living their lives. And so Two-Spirit was born as a way to kind of make a placeholder and to kind of have a sovereign term for our very pre-colonial originary notions and motions of what we now call queerness, right? We don't actually have words for queerness or gay or lesbian or bisexual or trans in, at least in my two languages, Nehiawiwin and Anishinaabemowin, uh, or Cree and Ojibwe, or Algonquin is also part of the family for the Anishinaabe. And so what that tells us, because our languages didn't have gender, it was completely just normalized and a part of indigenous cultures, at least in my spaces I can speak for. I can't speak for the other 153 nations fully. Um, And again, this was targeted, right? There are famous, not maybe infamous, um, anthropologists and painters such as George Catlin who made this... Again, it's in our largest art galleries for some reason on Turtle Island. This painting, Dance to the Bredesh, in which he called that the custom of, again, queerness, and he is using very derogatory terms at that time, is the most disgusting custom he's ever seen in Indian country, and he so wishes it to be extinguished. uh, Just to kind of give some parameters of the colonial, imperial, and assimilative ideologies that were percolating for and against us. So Two-Spirit came into being as, I kind of think about it as a placeholder. Mm-hmm. Yes, it's English. It has its limitations. Mm-hmm. Um, so for in Nehiawiwin or in Cree, we do have terms uh, that predate Two-Spirit uh, for what we might consider queerness now, like Napeowiskwaiwisat, or a man, or so- someone who identifies as a man who partakes in the cultural and communal roles of that which might be deemed, from Western standpoints, feminine or the woman's role, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and vice versa, women partook in warfare. Um, and then two-spirit people, not the Peowis Graveswat, would be kind of in the middle, the liminal person. And often we were just the aunties and uncles <laughs> of the children uh, who, you know, whose parents would have passed from any sort of reason, be it through war, genocide, sickness, etc. Hunting was a big one too. And so we have this term now. The work that we're trying to do is to... It, ingrain it back into a holistic, normalized epistemology of the Cree and the Anishinaabe that um, sets it as a precedent for originary rather than as new, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Because it does predate monikers such as LGBTQ. um, And primarily on Turtle Island, the big issue that we're having is a lot of settler sexualities like to Mm -hmm. eat and consume indigenous concepts Mm -hmm. of queerness to legitimize themselves, Mm -hmm. to be like, well, queerness on this island, which is the indigenous island, Turtle Island, has three, four, five, six, seven, eight genders across its nations, thereby it's legitimate for me, right, as Mm -hmm. someone with a settler sexuality. And so it's very much appropriated all the time, and so that's the kind of the active work that a lot of us are doing. And so you may have heard of the moniker Indigiqueer, which is the fusion of indigenous and queer, which is also perhaps a placeholder, but is more sovereign uh, as a way to ingrain one's indigeneity into the queerness rather than just relying on, again, what we call settler sexualities on Turtle Island. So that's a lot of work, <laughs> and it's a vast network, and it's just beautiful to be, for me to be on the stage and to be sharing these stories with you know, international indigenous folks uh, and to be sharing our knowledge system. So thank you all again, and thank you, everyone here, for having me. Well, thank you. Thank you, Josh, and thank you for setting us up. Yes, that good with that good grounding of what we're about to get into. I just did mm. want to touch on a few things that you raised in your um, in those introdu- introductory remarks around it being a placeholder, while also, though, you know, when we talk about your book, um, Making Love with the Land, obviously steeped in terms of the relationship and the exploration of, of how we connect with the land, that actually the, the, the queer pedagogies are, are in our land. So, like you say, they do predate. Mm. Is that work ongoing in terms of replacing that placeholder and kind of unearthing and reclaiming those particular stories of our whenua, of your land? Definitely. Like, the land itself is 
hella queer, basically. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and there may be another short story about the space where Two-Spirit was born, the, the confluence of those rivers, is also a highly ceremonial space sexually, too. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's the birthplace of post-contact nations, like the Métis, uh, like the Soto, like the OG Cree. And so these peoplehoods would come here, <laughs> sometimes forcibly removed, um, or you know, just as a, kind of finding a space of, I guess, utopic networking for and across indigenous peoples as colonization swept from east to west. And so these peoplehoods would often come there and so ideologies of sex and sexuality and gender become very ingrained in those very rivers mm-hmm. um, because it allowed for kind of, well, obviously procreation, but futurism through the merging of peoplehoods. And so the Nehia word, the Cree word for Manitoba is Manitobao, which means the strait of the spirits, S-T-R-A-I-T. And I always just love to joke. I'm like, well, the spirits are not straight. That's why there's <laughs> two of them out in that river. <laughs> but, yeah, and I think it's very much, for me, it's all ingrained in the land. Like, you know, language can definitely be um, forgotten, but it's never foregone. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's my life's work to unearth that through mm-hmm. land-based practices, through language revitalization, uh, and sometimes through language hybridity. I think mm-hmm. Cree now needs these terms. We need to have words for trans folks. We need to have words for queer folk, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and again, it all just posits back to pre-colonial times, and not to romanticize it. A lot of people like to think, oh, mm-hmm. two-spirit people, they have a masculine spirit, they have a feminine spirit. That's a very Western way to look <laughs> at it. We don't wear shamans, we're mystics. Like, if I had magic abilities, there would be no Canada. So, <laughs> the two-spirits would have wrecked that up if we did. <laughs> Um, but yeah, so it's all, it's all born in the land. It's born in the stories. Even our trickster stories, like Nanabush and Nanabojo, um, have tricksters who sometimes can move between genders, sometimes are agender, uh, have kind of attachable genitalia. Uh, you know, the mountains themselves have breasts that are detachable in our stories, right? So the stories in the land itself is the queer pedagogy. Mm-hmm. I think we've just lear- forgotten a little bit through cultural genocide, such as residential schools, mm-hmm. how to kind of read the land uh, as an auntie and uncle who was like fiercely and ferociously queer. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Eleanor, I'll come to you on this. As we've just traversed, obviously, two-spirit is a Tudor Island term. It's not a term for um, nor in, in Aotearoa nor um, in uh, mm-hmm. Australia. But... In your work, you've talked specifically as well about the colonisation of gender identity and sexuality and sex and and pleasure in sex. Before we kind of get more into your work, can you tell us kind of the similar concepts or things that have been talked about or been the resurgence of um, queer identity and gender identity within Aboriginal communities in Australia? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, um, and Jingari, everyone, it's it's a pleasure to be here amongst friends and, um, yeah, you know, I'm... Josh, when you're talking, I'm 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 nodding, you yeah. know, because there's, but I, I hesitate to use the word similar because I think mm-hmm. if we conflate, you know, our very unique identities from very different places, then you know, what do we lose? Mm-hmm. Um, but I'll talk a little bit about um, so-called Australia, um, <laughs> and I've got I know, that, I, it struggled to come out of my mouth. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> And I've got some notes because I do get emotional sort of talking about this stuff. I really do. Um, so there's a you know rich and diverse history of, of gender and sexuality in so-called Australia across many different groups, very diverse country, very old cultures. Um, so you know more than 500 individual First Nations groups. Um, and there's there's two works in particular that if you want to sort of learn more that I would suggest checking out. Um, I'd suggest checking out Dino Hodge's work. Um, there's a, there was a book called Colouring the Rainbow. Mm-hmm. And then the work of um, Dr Sandy O'Sullivan, um, who's written the, you know, the Colonial Project of Australia, the Gender Colonial Project of Australia. And um, I just want to give you a really brief overview because um, I'm not going to go into specific um, you know, cultural... Mm-hmm terms from you know places that I don't belong to but I'm just kind of going to give you very you know overviews so um, yes several First Nations groups have traditions of culturally specific gender categories and this is in the language so words in Aranda, Tiwi and Walpuri Um, so you know words that 
will you know the English translation will say like a girl, like a boy. Um, there's words that mean um, woman and man, um, and so. But you know, Dr. Sandy O'Sullivan talks about an imposition of European gender norms on First Nations peoples and how that was part of a broader colonial project that sought to eliminate Indigenous cultures and kinship systems. Um, and they and Sandy says that the colonial project of denying difference in gender and gender diversity within Indigenous peoples is a complex erasure casting aside every aspect of identity and replacing it with something that resembles the coloniser. Mm. Um, Dr Sandy O'Sullivan also says diverse Indigenous gender presentations remain incomprehensible to the colonial mind, mm. which I think is a really, you know which remains incomprehensible. So um, it's something that is, is, is a continuing thing. Um, we do have some uh, Aboriginal English terms. Um, so we have pan terms, sister girl and brother boy. Um, so sister girl is a term used by Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people to describe gender diverse people that have a female spirit and take on female roles within the community. This is, of course, an oversimplification of something that's really complex and deep and diverse within different groups. Um, brother boy is a term by Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people to describe gender-diverse people that have a male spirit and take on male roles in the community. Uh, these are sovereign genres. So mm. these you know, people that identify as sister girl and brother boy, they don't necessarily identify as trans because trans is this imported word um, and it comes from a Eurocentric understanding of gender um, and sister and how sister girl and brother boy use can differ between locations countries and nations and this terms these terms may not specifically define who someone is but it might complement identity or it might be about relationality um, so could be non-binary female or male um, and sister girl and brother boy can be used as terms of affection and kinship. Mm. Um, and non-trans um, but non-conforming Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people um, may also use these terms. So, for example, queer and heterosexual Aboriginal women may refer to themselves as sister girls, sisters or titters, and gay Aboriginal men may refer to themselves as sisters and titters. Um, and now to my own specific um, experience... Um, someone who's uh, Mananjali from South East Queensland. Um, and, you know, I think I grew up with a really strict policing of gender that came out in a school environment. Um, and I really did not feel free to express my queerness and gender queerness. Um, and, I, you know, our language is Yugamba language and um, our people were... Uh, yeah, it's you know, a genocidal attempt um, to wipe us out um, and we were almost wiped out and culture almost wiped out and language almost wiped out. Um, there's a massive reclaiming going on with language um, but I don't know our specific Yugambe words for our sovereign genres because mm. everything has been so colonised. Um, maybe one day I will... Um, or maybe, like Josh, that there is no such terms because it's so inherent in who we are. Mm. Um, I know a little bit about Gumbara, which is a um, macadamia, macadamia tree story, which um, my people are really connected to, um, which is a queer totem. Um, but there's so much more. And as much as I don't have Yugamba words to describe um, how I feel. I also don't have English terms. Um, mm -hmm. So it was, I think, it took me a really long time, you know, like I really felt a lot of shame and guilt when I was growing up and feel, from feeling fluid at a very young age but not having that sort of, it's having so much negativity and rejection. Um, uh, you know, it was probably until I was 27, 28, and I actually moved away from where I grew up. I've only spent two years away from home, um, and I lived in Melbourne. As a lot of us queers, you know, we kind of gravitate to the big cities, and we find kin, kinship there, and I started talking to a few friends, a few lovers, and a few cousins about, you know, my ex and my understanding of gender 
grew. Um, and this goes beyond just, you know, talking to um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, but other gender diverse people from other cultures as well. And actually it was realising, you know, halfway through um, a, a performance of my friend Raina, who's, um, who, who's third gender from South, South Asia. So Raina was a dancer. Raina was doing this incredible, you know, dance performance. And I just, you know, me watching in the crowd, see such fluidity and in movement and comfort in their body and, and just occupying the space and being mm. like, you know, I'm here. Um, I just, you know, this is me, 27, 28. Um, I just rushed out of there at the end of the performance and started crying. Mm. And then I cried for about a year. <laughs> um, no, I'm like serious. I cried for about a year because I just realised that, you know, Raina occupying the truth that it was, I had to try and find a way to tell people and show people who I was. And so I moved back home um, and I, I'm doing that. So what, it, what is all this for? Why, you know, why am I talking about this? Why am I writing about this? Um, I think my writing is for others who are going through similar questions and struggles that I went through and maybe helping them not feel alone or isolated or just that they can take another step forward on another day. So thanks. Mm. Stunning, stunning corridor. When you're talking about, I, I just want to quickly pick up on one point you made there around who you're writing for. Mm. So when you approach your work and when you sit in front of your computer or sit wherever you're, you're processing or trying to think about what you're going to write, is that who you who drives you? I think so. I think 100%. And then it could just be one person. It could be, you know, just, you know, it could be that, that younger self. It could be those younger people that that talk to me and just you know being you know you know getting to you know certain age not being in my 20s anymore you know I'm talking to young people you know in that are school age and and they're coming to me with their questions and their thoughts and their feelings and um, of course I just feel like I just want to embrace um, all of those people that are uh, you know drawn to 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 reading and and to, to having this conversation so yeah, 100%, but at the same time, my work is for, for, for everyone. Mm. Mm. Speaking of colonial minds, as you um, touched on, mm. how do you kind of um, balance or how do we ensure that this sort of work and, you know, that the, I don't like saying vulnerabilities, but, but, but ex, you know, talking about these big issues who you have specifically in order to empower and ensure that people, these stories are being told um, and shifting perceptions. But where is the balance of making sure that it's not fetishized? Yeah, it's, you know, I think we were talking about that earlier today. Like, I was just like, um, sometimes I get, like, a thing, like, I feel a feeling of, like... Um, Sometimes there's certain spaces where it doesn't feel safe to to open up about uh, experiences and to sh sort of share our knowledge in a sense that, that they're going to be misinterpreted or they're going to be cherry-picked mm -hmm. for the usage and the, the benefit and the power of someone else. Mm -hmm. and, um, and, and sometimes, you know, we can... You know, we, we move in these spaces and... We, we share a lot and um, sometimes, you know, you can have this sort of vulnerability fatigue um, and mm -hmm. feeling, you know, how much, how much is, uh, are our peoples and our communities getting back from this exchange or, you know, so there's really, you know, tricky things that kind of come about this. And I think it really does come from um, when I was, um, I started sort of, writing books um, when I was, um, you know, 20, 21. And um, at, at the time, um, uh, a friend and a writer of mine, um, a, f a friend of mine and a, write, uh, a Rajuri writer, Anita Heiss, um, sort of said to me um, in her writing of my work that, um, that there wasn't many, you know, queer First Nations writers publishing work um, and but you know that was ten years ago. Now there's more of us. Um, but I think you know initially, um, 
I would be at a writers festival or whatever, or people would just be very, just asking really basic questions <laughs> about like, what is it like to be, you know, indigenous <laughs> and queer and. Um, that's all they wanted to Damn it, there was a question. <laughs> anyway, yeah. No, no. <laughs> but it's, yeah, it's sort of, yeah, picking your moments and feeling, you know, feeling guided by what's, you know, appropriate to say and share and looking after yourself. Absolutely, that's key. Mm. Sorry, Corsica, okay, I will come, come to you, but I just want to pick up on this point, um, Joshua. For you, you know, you raised the misappropriation of two-spirit and others, non, you know, non-Indigenous um, claiming that. In your, especially in, in your work around, um, you know, with Johnny Appleseed and that particular character and what was mm. grown around that in order to kind of, like Ellen's already touched on, reclaiming that that narrative in that space. I mean, how was it received? Has it grown quite a lot since that was since Johnny Appleseed was released and your first poetry collections as well? I mean, yeah, definitely. I was a small town, small city writer, like literally peddling poems for pennies in the streets of Winnipeg. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, wrote this book, Full Metal and Digiqueer, which was basically a cybernetic trickster that like infects the canon and recenters indigenous characters where they have been appropriated from. My book, Johnny Appleseed, though, was kind of a love letter, I would say, to the indigenous women uh, in my mm-hmm. life uh, and the indigenous queer folks who have preceded or with me and then will proceed me. And so the book I, was, I wrote for a very specific community from a very specific vantage point. And, you know, I thought it was going to be for, you know, read by just the, the queer folks that I know and maybe some indigenous women and then, you know, maybe some... BIPOC allies as well. Um, but no, it went on to win Canada Reads, which is Canada's largest, um, kind of largest literary stage that you can win, uh, and then became a bestseller for our, almost a full year and has remained on the top of that. Um, and it's now taught <laughs> in schools and in universities and in book clubs. Uh, and I got to say, it's like wildly. That's kind of a little um, shocking, but also very enlightening when I get, like, you know, um, a, a cute little white grandmother who, like, shoots me a message on Instagram, and I was like, I loved your story. It made me blush. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, a rim job will do that. <laughs> but it has been received very well, and, you know, it's not... It's not, I don't, as you know, we have this idea that writers write in a vacuum, that we're solitary, that we're all old men on the sea drinking whiskey and like (laughs) living this sad, sad life. Uh, Surely life is sad, but I I write communally. Uh, I am more uh, like an avatar of a chorus than I am kind of the sole proprietor. Mm. Um, So I, I take a lot of offense with. Even saying this is my story, mm-hmm. because it's not mine, it's ours, right? Mm-hmm. And I think th- what's happening in the space of Canada right now is that a lot of queer, trans, indigenous writers are at the forefront of Canadian literary publishing, mm-hmm. Canadian literary awards, because these are the stories that people actually want to hear and not these anthropo- anthropological, romanticized, completely excavated and autopsied stories of indigenous peoples, and or the kind of incessant thirst that a lot of readers in Canada have for the residential school narrative, right? They want to see a broken, quote-unquote, Indian struggling, doing the triumphant hero story, very kind of Odysseus, very very Greek, right? And triumphing, the one in the million, right? And now I think that we've kind of gotten to a point where we're exhausted by that as writers uh, and as storytellers. And we're now more focused on telling stories of joy and telling sexy stories, mm-hmm. having romance, seeing ourselves in speculative fiction, writing horror stories, and we're just so much less focused. And Johnny, I think, Johnny Appleseed, my, my novel, was it's, it definitely was not any part of a, an opener for that, but it's kind of part of the collective tide, I think. Mm-hmm. And it, it's, a, it's an honor to be there and to bring new emerging Indigenous writers with me. Absolutely. Mm. And Kotoku, for you, especially in Toho, like you come from this 
these both sides, right, Turtle Island and Aotearoa, mm-hmm. um, and and like um, Joshua's just said, around you know the, all the different genres and and um, topics that you can traverse as a writer. Mm-hmm. How much does you know the the term takatapui and for and for those who may not know what that term is, it's um, kind of broadly means intimate companion of the same sex, but it's been reclaimed to embrace all Māori who identify with diverse gender, sexualities, and sex character characteristics. Again, not my area, I, I don't want to overstep that because as we've, we've mm. talked about, it's not, you, nothing, you can't conflate all of these terms. Mm. But for you, Kotsuku, what do you, how does that inform your writing and especially with Tohu? Um, well, I think most of the characters in the book are queer, but it's not explicitly stated. Mm. Most of the relationships are between like women or women and non-binary people. Um, which I kind of didn't realise till the end. It just kind of happened while I was writing. Um, and then uh, kind of, I guess, the only hetero stuff is um, parents and grandparents who also were living in a time where they kind of had to be a certain way. Um, whereas I think the characters I've written uh, are part of a world where things are just the way they are, um, which I think is how I feel about myself as well, and I think maybe similar for a lot of other, like, queer Māori people, where, um, like, I don't know any of my iwi having a specific name for any identity, Um, and I don't know many of my relatives talking about it, but then, like, if you ask about someone specifically, they'll be like, oh, yeah, they only sleep with men or women or they do things a different way, but it's just who they are as a person um, and there's not, like, a, a grouping for, like, I don't know, othering those people or anything. It's just like, oh, that's auntie so-and-so who's, you know, she's just like that. And <laughs> uh, which I think, yeah, I wish there were words, but I also like that everyone is met on their own terms um, and that their identity is something that belongs to them. Um, and so I guess that's kind of how I feel about myself is... Uh, <laughs> I mean, that sound forever, um, basically. Uh, both in terms of kind of straight-up colonial standards and then also kind of the ways that, um, like... Tell Māori has changed from colonialism and the way that sometimes things come across as very strict when it, like, in, inside of me I feel like that is not, that doesn't line up with the values of our culture and stuff like that. Yeah, um, yeah and there's kind of a sneaky conservatism sometimes in traditional spaces that is tricky to navigate because when you're trying to reconnect to something or find your place at home, um, but then you're kind of coming up against, I don't know, these vestiges of things that have happened before. Um, I don't know, it's very confusing. Mm. Uh, but then also kind of in an urban landscape, which is where I'm used to being, mm-hmm. um, everything is very European as well, and mm-hmm. queer spaces don't necessarily feel right either. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes they can be even worse than, like, yeah, yeah, just regular kind of European spaces. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so I I think that's... My, my queerness is, like, completely dependent on, like, my gender, my, my culture, my whakapapa. Like, it doesn't exist without my culture and my ancestors... <laughs> It's completely, I don't know, everything's so interwoven, I can't mm. break it apart. Mm-hmm. Um, but it wasn't until I started, like, investigating that more that I felt more comfortable to be, like, I am not quite these things that maybe I thought I was. Um, yeah, so it's all, I don't know, learning everything all at once and kind of 
yeah, yeah. weaving something out of that. And, I mean, because you had to kind of, you did a lot of work in terms of bringing the two kind of world, not worlds, but, you know, Swainich and, um, you know, Aotearoa and your whakapapa here, bringing those two kind of together in a way. Mm. Was that in terms of understanding and, and exploring um, that particular kind of idea of, of takatāpui tanga, did that, was that quite inherently, was it inherent when it kind of started to come together? Could you see the dichotomies between the two? Oh. <laughs> um, it's tricky. So my Kosalish Whakapapa mm. is um, it's from kind of the southeast coast of Vancouver Island um, and comes from my estranged father who is a tricky person. Um, his mother was a residential school survivor and that obviously uh, – carried a lot of stuff over into him and the way he kind of raised us. Um, which also, like, he had lots of weird ideas about gender too, I think, from that. But then also from his idea of he was very proud to be Native um, and he wanted us to be very proud to be Native, but then he would also use gender against us sometimes. Um, but he, like, only had daughters. So he had, like, seven daughters mm. before he had any sons. Yeah. So... Uh, we were also kind of raised to be very... Well, I love all the women in your books because we were all kind of quite butch, like, <laughs> very, like, rough and tumbly. Um, yeah, and so our ideas of girlhood, I think, were quite different because of that. Um, and then otherwise, for the rest of my childhood, like, I feel like I was raised in a bubble with my mother who was just, you know, I was always myself and everything was completely fine and safe. Mm. So, yeah, it's not until, like, recently that the more I go out into the world, the more I have to define things. Mm. Um, yeah. yeah. But then in terms of, like, I guess the difference between uh, Turtle Island and Aotearoa, um, I think the people I was connecting with the most were, like, Two-Spirit and young women, because they were the people kind of leading language revitalization and also um, healing medicine. Mm -hmm. And they're also the people who are kind of speaking up about community members who had harmed them as children um, or as young adults and kind of creating spaces for people to be safer. Mm -hmm. um, and because I was trying to avoid not running into <laughs> yeah, my yeah, father, yeah. essentially. <laughs> so, um, yeah. Yeah, those those were the people who were, I guess, doing the mahi. Doing the <laughs> like, mahi. Yeah. Um, I did. I like I said, I wanted to have some time for readings, um, and in order to kind of have some audience questions as well. Um, so I might just get. Uh, there is so much I want to traverse. I want to talk about language revitalization. I want to talk about the harm <laughs> and which all the, <laughs> um, especially of late around you know the hateness, the hateness and the hatred. Sorry towards our um, communities, mm. but. Let's go with our readings. Let's have a little bit of a breather. And if we have time, we can revisit that or have some questions. So, um, Joshua, I'd love you to share your reading with us. You can either come to the lectern if you'd like to stand or however you feel most comfortable reading. Um, sure. Begin here. Where is the page that I selected? <laughs> um, okay, well, so I'll read a little bit from The End of Making Love with the Land, which is a book of essays about indigeneity, queerness, and I think most importantly, mental health. Um, mm -hmm. as a COVID text. It didn't begin as that, but that's how it came out. <laughs> <laughs> and I guess I'll just preface really quickly. Um, so we lost a great matriarch in an indigenous country in the space of Canada mm -hmm. uh, not too long ago. Uh, her name is Lee Miracle, mm -hmm. and she is just the grandmother, the auntie, the cookum for all of us who are writers, her among the kind of vanguard that she was with. But she taught me once, uh, after the death of another writer, Richard Wagamies, uh, who was a residential school survivor and died from multiple different things, but she reminded all of us that we can never afford to abandon one another. Mm. And so this piece comes from that. It's called Me, the Joshua Tree, and is about a, uh, it's a breakup piece, but it's thinking about how to transform basically pain and harm into uh, love and growth from, as queer people. Um, okay. Knowing what is to come, I offer you this word, or a strawberry back. 
which also means a breakup. See how these words revolve in continuums. My boy with the pakupayu mawikan, the broken back. We are stretching nehiawiwin to fit around us for the impending decision, sheathing ourselves in language. We become pikupayu, or broken. But look, look at how linguistics hold us, animate us. As I do with your broken back, I do with our broken relation. I crunch language into new meaning, find signs in the gravel of my breaking molars, transform ga pikupayakwigituin into gaskamiochowin wakotuin, or we build up inertia in an enclosure to enact all of my relations. Let's do this together, nitchimus questanitotem, or lover turned friend. Wichi and Nantataweo, Equania Estomo, and Cochin Tamakeo, and Kiwa Wakaneo Kikeo, Kopetapayak, Mio Michioven. My lover turned changed into my friend. Help me heal, and I promise to try to help support you to bend into good health, good feelings, the act of feeling euphoric. You rest your head on my shoulder, and I wrap my arm around you, squeeze the softness of your torso. Huff in your now wolfen scent. It is almost metallic, that pleasant smell of sodium and wet zinc. I think again about finality and choke myself with it. But you say you love me, and the hold breaks. I tell you that I have never loved so wildly as I have and do for you. And then you look up at me, the sun drowning in the well of your eyes. I wish I knew how to slow down time, to enjoy, cherish, revel in the acts of love we gifted one another. I tell you, I don't remember our last good kiss and cry thinking that our final love act was a simple peck goodbye. I say, can we have one last good kiss before we end this? And you nod, say, of course. You kiss me, and I grab the coattails of time to archive this. Everything pours into and out of this act we share, so much so that if I were to narrate it here with you, I would fail before I even begin, so I don't try. We hold the kiss as a man fishes across the Bow River. Cyclists pass by. A train conductor wails steam into the air. Beaver, loon, duck, starling, wolf, willow, buffalo bean, grass, river, rock, feathers all come to witness this moment of goodbye, and I hold the kiss steady. We have never been much for public affection. When you grab my hand in a movie theater, scared by a horror film, I sometimes flinch. And the optics of queerness often terrify me in spaces safe and or otherwise. But I hold you here, lips pursed, and I am packing in as much as I can fit, willing myself into becoming stone or a fossil or an arrowhead or petrified wood for you to take with you. I wish I could have given you more moments like this during our time together. There is still so much I want to show you, and I will. But as I said, finality is obsessed with punctuation. When we pull apart, I lick my lips and savor the roux of your saliva, a distinct flavor, smoke, pea berry, zephyr. We sit in this peaceful sliver we have created together, holding tightly on to one another, and now I am a man simply full. In this stasis I call wreckage, I thank you for releasing me from the throes of what we'd called a flow. And while we walk back to our temporary home, I murmur my name to a starling so that it'll follow you, guide you, and you won't lose me in all this mourning. I didn't tell you this, but I pray to Creator every day during those difficult times. I smudged until my lungs blossomed mascosi seeds. I danced across the sky, flew to a mother in a dream. I drank the rich, musty water of Sapi, baptized myself with Amisk in her dam. I shared Ginoseo bones with Wachask. I ripped off the wing of a damselfly and glued it on my back. I split open the abdomen of a Quaquegosis and drank its sweet luciferin. I chewed the sinew of Musqua. I did all of this to pray and say, please, creator, don't let the world take this love away. 
And what I found in the remains of this sweaty, bloody mess was that Sagitin, or love, had shapeshifted, planted itself into a new body, and now we are hooved and galloping in the afterglow of a morning transformed. In that glow I exist, me, the Joshua tree, guiding you to the good home that exists both within and without me. And I hope you'll take me, at least as a seedling, into the gardens of your Mtemiguam, your heart home. And I revel in your joy, my boy. I carry you with me, love sap molded into the crevice of this splitting heartwood. Thank you, Joshua. That was stunning. And um, yeah, um, you don't. Are there any copies left yet out there so that people know? Or n- Currently, no, unfortunately. But uh, do you get from your indie bookstores? Support indie. Can't <laughs> yeah. No, good guy. Because no. I know everyone will be asking straight after this. Yeah. So we want to clarify for the crowd. <laughs> We're all going to be rushing to get a copy. Yeah, yeah. That was stunning. Um, Kotaku, could I please hand the rako to you, my friend, for reading? Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Like ten minutes ago, so we might not have audience questions, but I'm sure would prefer readings over audience questions. I found no. <laughs> <laughs> you can ask some questions at the autograph or the autograph, <laughs> the <laughs> signing table. <laughs> uh, I forgot to mark the page when I was looking over it earlier today. Um, uh, this is like, I don't know if. This book is a lot of different things. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is kind of, it's just like a one, it's like a one chapter, a small story. Mm. Um, it's called Hewahine Aho Ehara Aho Itewahine. Um, there's like some medical stuff and some kind of suicidal stuff. So just if sure. um, Puha lies back at, on the doctor's table. She spreads her legs and feels the cool air between her thighs. The doctor is chatting away, trying to soothe her nerves. The doctor is nice, but doesn't seem to understand that Puha doesn't feel apprehensive. Now that she's here, she doesn't feel anything at all. Puha hears middle on middle. She prepares herself for the feeling of something inside of her. Her breathing is steady. A womb is a world of problems. A Greek man from a thousand years ago might try to convince you that a womb makes you crazy. As Puha feels the speculum enter her, she thinks that her womb has only ever been a resignation. As a child, bleeding at first felt like a death sentence. She didn't understand that the blood came only once a month. She took the menstrual pads her mother handed her and resigned herself to bleeding every day for the rest of her life. The doctor spreads the speculum and Puha feels a sharp pain. She thought she was prepared, but as the doctor pushes further, it becomes apparent she was not. The doctor swabs her cervix, and Puha thinks about how much she hates the pictures she has seen of such parts. They're pink and look very sore and sensitive. She hates to imagine a whole baby being pushed from such a thing. On the months she bleeds, the cramps radiate out from her spine, through her back and belly. It used to make her feel like a real woman. She would cuddle up to her ex-boyfriend and complain and know that even if the rest of her life failed, she could have his baby and then maybe her life might mean something. Pregnancy scares were wonderful. They were among the most powerful reasons not to kill herself. The doctor withdraws the speculum, congratulates Puha and begins to tidy up. Puha gets dressed and slips her shoes back on. She thinks about visiting the Farinui at Humarai, the shoes lined up outside. Men were supposed to enter the fare first, and women should follow. Because of their childbearing abilities, women were to be protected. They held the future of the people in their bellies. Puha feels uncomfortable with this. She would check her womb at the door if it meant she could find her place freely and without judgment. Though she found warmth with the aunties at the marae, she still felt a distance from her assumed womanhood. The more she thinks about it now, the more she does not want children... She spends most of her mornings staring out the windows of her small flat, the glass heavy with condensation. Sometimes it takes an hour for her to begin making breakfast. She falls into despair. She wakes tired, ready to die. Recently, her uncle gave her a little dog he found in his neighbourhood. 
That has helped. Puha takes it for walks in the morning before she eats. The, doctor, uh, the dog makes her do anything at all. The doctor is describing how tiny cysts grow in and around ovaries. Puha is wondering if she has any child-rearing abilities whatsoever. If she can't have children, the children she hasn't planned for and doesn't want, then what is the point of the womb that burdens her so? She imagines splitting her belly open and stepping to the front of the line, standing among the men on their way inside the marae. Maybe it wouldn't have been so fraught for her before the foreign ships came. Maybe her friends and family would have understood her, known that there was something different about her body and who she loved, and celebrate her gifts. Whether she had a womb or not, maybe they would have never quite treated her as a woman, and maybe that would have been more comfortable. The doctor hands Puha some freshly printed documents on polycystic ovary syndrome. The paper is still warm, the ink was running out and getting lighter on every page. The doctor is explaining Puha's hormone level results. Her testosterone is higher than a woman's usually is. But this doesn't sound so wrong to her. She feels like more than a woman. She loves being a woman, especially one who loves other women. But she's uncomfortable with the idea that that's all she's meant to be. There's something else inside of her for sure. She's just not completely clear on what or who it is. She is a woman dwelling between worlds of shadow and light. They say that women are the land, the earth is a mother. Puha is not the earth. She does not feel formed from the clay at Kurawaka. She feels like the sun, scorching hot. She feels like Tani's legs and thighs, taut and tired. She feels like the swell of ocean water. When she dies, she knows the birds and lizards will, and ugly fish will cry a din. She is a trick, a locked door, the disembodied laugh of a ghost in a hallway. Physically, she carries the burdens of Tifari Tangata, but she has made decisions, and the creator has made decisions, that means she will never bear children. This is acceptable to her. The doctor shakes her hand and leads her to the door. It feels like Puha leaves something behind in the room on the examining table. Thank you so much, Kotoku. That's beautiful. Incredible. Ellen. Yes. This is about desire, um, reclaiming desire and against desirability. Um, after a while, I find comfort in First Nations writing whose undercurrent of longing is intersectional. Queer black longing is charged by culture and community. Coined by artist Destiny Deacon in the early 90s, black, B-L-A-K, is a self-determining term used by mob, particularly urban identifying. After spending the year in Nam, I go back to visit country and I'm confronted by nostalgia and idealization. Sentimentality is exactly what James Baldwin warned me about. Look at that sky, I feel, think, excitedly. Look at those trees. And I wonder if my futuring around working and living on country is based on a slippery desire of the self. My skin is warmer. I get excited about writing about country again. Later in the summer, I find myself making love with my crush, pleased with her nipples, long against my touch, still not finding the right space. I'm attracted to you, I admitted, exactly three hours earlier on Tangerang country by a lake that reflected both the light and the shadow of our figures. I'm attracted to you too, she said. The first release, the naming of what was there. After she leaves in a taxi, not staying the night, I spend the next 24 hours listening to love songs, noting their tricky relationship with time. The verse and chorus can exist in different temporal spaces, which makes sense as feelings of love and desire often deal with the remembered past and the imagined future, which can hold both hope and pain equally. The result is perceiving how much pain will be caused in the future. 
When white women want me, they want my identity. Since before I can remember, I've been objectified and sexualized by white women who are intrigued by my queerness, my blackness, and my body. Black sexuality and desires have been the subject of much white fetishization and demonization placed in contrast to a repressive colonial religious culture. They want my identity differently. My identity becomes about them. They want to talk about me for me. They want the community, the approval, and the absolution of white guilt. They want to absorb the idea of me, small and theoretical, instead of the real me, which expands beyond stereotypes and assumptions. My body holds hair patterns, softness and hardness, strength and pride and pain. I can't conform to the idea of me. When black women want me, this also becomes about identity. My crush stares at me from the other side of the lake. I stare back. Desire is not a design flaw. I want you are dangerous words for a black queer to say, but I say them anyway. I say them with every inkling of the consequences these words can bring. I say them again and again and again. That is unfortunately our time up and again feeling like we've just scratched the surface but I think our writers have left us all with something so I just want to give a big mihi um, kia koutou, thank you so much for sharing space with us today, for being generous uh, in what you've shared as well as what you're doing for our people, uh, iwi takitaki indigenous people all over the world especially for our babies. Kia ora. And as I said, they will be um, uh, signing at the author table, so if you just um, go there. But just before we all wrap up and go out the door, we'll just quickly do a karakia to wrap us up, eh? And so to close off the space where things have been shared, heavy, light things and those sorts of things, okay? Kapai, so we go well. Mienui tātou. Hengaro ki rotu i te matikuku ko tēnei ahau te tipua te te tēni hoi te pau o te whare. Whakatau hikitia tō tapuwai. Tsua nei wahora mihi kāhui manu. Te rākau o whakatau he mumuhau he āwha tai. Pēnei tai whene ki whenaua oi. Oi oi a mai te tokia. Haumie hui e. Tai ki e. Tēnā nō tātou. <laughs>